As it must come to all men, death comes to Samuel. And whether it is at the age of five or 105, Psalm 139 is true when it says, In your book they all were written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. Tonight, after 36 sermons looking at the life of Samuel, we come to the end of the life of Samuel, and it ends like all men's must with his death. We're going to look at this one verse in some depth because Scripture actually speaks to the concepts here in great depth. Let's pray together and seek the Lord's help. Our Father, by the blessed Holy Spirit, you've given this word for our instruction. And by your providential care, you have preserved the word pure and intact for millennia so that not one of your words has fallen to the ground, so that we hold in our hands tonight the truth. Now give us reverence as we handle your word. Give all who hear tender hearts under the word attentiveness and insight. And use the preaching of the word to convict, correct, and train us that we might be wise, mature, faithful servants of our King. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Since it's been a few weeks since we've thought much about Samuel, we've been looking at those events that occurred during the life of Samuel but happened mostly to David and Saul, let me remind you of the overview of Samuel's life, his obituary. It's often the case that at a funeral, the family will say, Carl, could you do an overview of their life at this funeral? And so let me give you Samuel's obituary, his life. Samuel was the son of Elkanah and Hannah and is considered one of the four or five major prophets of the Bible. His legacy as a prophet began when he was about 13 years old and God had anointed him for this position. By the time Samuel grew into adulthood, he had become the central public figure in Israel, was widely known as a prophet, a preacher, and a judge. His story began with his mother Hannah, who was a barren woman. Hannah could not conceive and she was extremely distraught. She begged God to give her a son, and in return, she vowed that she would place this child in the Lord's service. God honored her request and intervened to open her womb in about 1100 B.C. That timing is important. And after she'd given birth to Samuel, she cared for him in the the early years of his life. And as soon as he was weaned, at about the age of four, he was given to the care of the high priest Eli. Once placed in Eli's care, he learned the scriptures, he learned how to conduct worship. From that time, from the time Samuel was born, all through his life of almost 95 years, the Philistines were the the neighboring pest, they dominated Israel. And God gave Samuel as a young man the task, even though he was a priest, a prophet, gave him the task of gathering an army to rout the Philistines in battle. The nation had to repent and return to Jehovah in order to be successful in battle. But God was with the Israelites, and they defeated the Philistines at the Battle of Mizpah, one of the great military battles in Scripture. Samuel was also a judge of the people of Israel, and after his victory at Mizpah, he rode a circuit from north to south, judging the people of Israel for many years, applying the law of God to their situation. And as a prophet, Samuel was the first person in Israel since Moses to publicly declare repentance. His leadership came to an end when he was going to place his own sons in charge of the Israelite people, as he had been 
The people declared their unwillingness to have his sons be their leaders. They said they no longer wanted judges, they wanted kings like all the other nations around them. God gave them their request, and Samuel anointed Saul as the first king. He then is used by God to declare Saul's demise and to anoint David, the son of Jesse, as king. And after this, eventually at about the age of 95, Samuel dies in Ramah in about 1010 B.C. That's the whole story. That's Samuel's life in a nutshell. But I want you to look at what our text says. Look at 1 Samuel 25.1. And we are told something that is so commonplace we read past it. I think we have a psychological vested interest in reading past this. We don't like to be reminded. We are told, then Samuel died. Our culture has so much confusion about death because we've removed it from the place that Scripture gives it. In this culture, we've done something radical and profound. We have privatized death. People die in hospitals alone. One of the saddest things of the last two and a half years is that already death usually was happening in a hospital alone. But in the last two and a half years, family members couldn't even get to their relatives, even if they wanted to. And so it became the standard commonplace. Everyone died alone in a hospital. Instead of at home, as we'll see in just the briefest survey of Scripture in a moment, the model you see in Scripture is, is the normal death happened at home with people surrounded by family who historically had to deal with death over and over again in their home, the dying of grandparents and parents and siblings and children and friends and spouses. And in so doing, especially among Christians, They had to deal with issues of mortality and frailty and finality and eternal destiny right there in their home. The cult of youthfulness and vitality keeps promising us that death is not not the last enemy but can be thwarted by gyms and spas and facelifts and cosmetic surgeries and healthy foods and diets and other body-enhancing procedures. It's all a lie. You will die. And so will I. Perhaps this will be the year that I preach your funeral. What is death? Look at the words in verse 1. We're told Samuel died. What is death? Most of the discussions I've had about death and the afterlife have been marked by awful speculation, folk religion, conjecture, opinion, and not dependent at all upon the clear teaching of the Bible. But the Christian always wants to know the simple answer. What does the Bible say? And so let me make 11 assertions about death, Samuel's and yours. Turns out your death will be exactly like Samuel's in these 11 cases. First of all, the Bible defines physical death. In Ecclesiastes 12, as the termination of physical life by the separation of the soul from the body. That's when death occurs, when the soul leaves the body, thereby introducing an unnatural state where your body and soul are separate. This is unnatural because we're psychophysical beings. We have a body and a soul. We are a body and a soul. And when those two are separated, this is called death, according to Ecclesiastes 12. A second assertion about death, Samuel's and yours. The time of everyone's death is ordained and unchangeable. Job writes in Job 14.5, Of man his days are determined, 
The number of his months is with you, Lord. You have appointed his limits so that he cannot pass. And what scripture teaches repeatedly is death cannot be slowed down or sped up. To say that someone died an untimely death is to speak of things from our perspective, not from that of a sovereign God who has decreed every last heartbeat. It's ordained. A third assertion about death, Samuel's and yours. Physical death only happens once. The scriptures are incredibly clear on this. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for men once to die. When you hear the stories, and you can go into the Christian bookstores and see these. These are best-selling books. You hear the stories of, I died, I saw a white light, I went down a tunnel, I went to heaven, and then I came back a few days later. When you hear those, hold on to your wallet and don't believe them because they're all lying. None of it's true. Men die once, and that's it. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, not to die is to be absent from the body, present with the Lord, back in the body, back with the Lord. No. Hebrews 9 is clear. It is appointed unto men to die once. A fourth assertion. True for Samuel, true for you. Physical death happens to the great and small, black and white, rich and poor. Samuel died. There's no escape from that. It doesn't matter if he's one of the three or four greatest prophets of the Old Covenant. All people must die. You must die. Two men in the history of the world, of the tens of billions of people who have ever lived, two men have skipped death, Enoch and Elijah. Don't count on being an Enoch or an Elijah. All the world is a hospital, and every person in it is a terminal patient. Physical death happens to everyone. A fifth assertion about death. Physical death is always transitional, not terminal. The atheist mathematician Bertrand Russell said, The only thing that will live on of me is my brilliance, my ideas, and my books. When I die, all there will be of me is dust. Well, Russell, as on all other things, was sadly mistaken and tragically wrong. Our death is a gateway to an eternal existence. Death is transitional, not terminal. Death is not an end, it's a beginning. That's why Paul said in Philippians 1, I have the desire to depart and be with Christ. He saw death as simply a doorway, a gateway to that existence. Sixth assertion, true for Samuel will be true for you. Physical death for a believer is always a home-going. It is, according to John 14, an entrance to the place that Christ has prepared for you. This is why the Apostle Paul could say in 2 Corinthians 5, we are of good courage and prefer rather to be absent from the body and at home with the Lord. This is not your home. This is a way station. You're a pilgrim. You are passing through rapidly. And so what we are taught is that our home awaits us, that home that Christ is preparing. A seventh assertion, true for Samuel, true for you. Physical death for a believer is a cleansing from all sin. When Hebrews 12 speaks of the state of the souls in heaven, the writer of Hebrews describes them as the spirits of just men made perfect. When we were in Las Vegas 
my dear elders, like a father to me, was Woody Woods. And we were walking down the hall one day at Spring Meadows Presbyterian Church. And the junior high Sunday school class was doing uh, a project. And so their teacher had given them all camcorders. If you're under about the age of 30, you have no idea what I'm talking about, the camcorder. But I promise it's a thing. It's like a movie camera. But um, they were walking around and they were interviewing any old people in the church they could find. And we had very few older folks, but one of them was Woody Woods. And a kid came running up and said, Mr. Woods, could you tell me what heaven will be like? And it was as though he'd been prepared. Woody looked straight into the camera and said, I'll stop sinning. That was it. That's all he could think of. And that's because that's the consistent testimony of the believer. Physical death for a believer means a cleansing from all sin. An eighth assertion about the death of believers. The physical death of a believer is a delightful occurrence to God. He rejoices at the death of the believer. We're told in Psalm 116, David records, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. As profoundly sad as the loss of your mother or husband or child may seem to you, the Lord delights to welcome them home, his redeemed child, and have that unbroken, unmarred fellowship with him forever. A ninth assertion about death. Samuel and yours. Physical death ushers the believer into a new understanding of truth. The old gospel song had as a chorus, we'll understand it better by and by. And that's correct. For example, in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul speaks of that time when we shall see Christ face to face and will be not marked any longer by weak cognitive abilities. And Paul says, then I shall know as I am known. Does this mean at death you'll know everything? No. Death doesn't make you omniscient. That attribute is reserved for God alone. But it is safe to say that at death and your home going, you'll no longer hold false propositions. A tenth assertion. Samuel's death and yours. The physical death of a believer will take you to a far better place. No matter what your age or living situation, you might live in the most glamorous neighborhood in Greenville. You might live on an island in Tahiti. God has a superior existence for you. In Philippians 1, Paul is discussing which is better, to live in his current state or to go, die, and be with Christ. He quickly concludes to be with Christ is, his term, far better. This is why John Calvin said, Oh, what a sad sentence it would be if we were bound to dwell in this poor, fallen world forever. An eleventh assertion about death. Samuel's and yours for every believer. Death for the Christian. And there are some of you who are introverts, like to stay away from people. And this is going to come as a little bit of a shock and even perhaps a difficulty for you. Death for the Christian means being taken to the redeemed people of God for eternal fellowship. It's interesting how often scripture, especially in the Old Testament, uses this phrase to speak of the death of the believer. In Genesis 25.8, we're told of Abraham that he died and was gathered up to his people. 
In Genesis 35:29, we read of Isaac. He breathed his last and died and was gathered up to his people. In Genesis 49, we read, Jacob drew his feet into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered up to his people. You see, death for the Christian is not an entrance into aloneness. It's a being ushered into the communion of the saints perfected. No more ruptures or falling out, no more disagreements and painful misunderstandings, only harmony, unity, and joy. And it is a knowing one another. The question most ministers ask is, will we know one another in heaven? Spurgeon answered that question to a woman who approached him one Sunday morning at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, who said, Pastor Spurgeon, will we know one another in heaven? And Spurgeon said, well, shall we be bigger fools in heaven than we are now? We will know one another without any of the, I remember your face, but I just can't remember your name. But let me say this, when I say death for the Christian is being taken to the redeemed people of God, if you don't enjoy the fellowship of believers now, maybe you're what the Puritans called a sermon taster. Carl, can I just kind of go and sit on the back row and then duck out before the benediction? It's, you know, the word of God is okay, but the people of God, whew, they drive me crazy. If you don't enjoy the fellowship of God's people in this world, what makes you think you'd enjoy it for all eternity? Well, notice what else our text says. We're told that Samuel died, and then we are told something once again repeated over and over again. We are told of Samuel's burial. We're told Samuel died, the Israelites gathered together and lamented for him, and buried him at his home in Ramah. Is burial important? Let me show you why it was massively important for Israel to honor Samuel by burying him. 800 years before Samuel's death, just to show you that this was the Israelite, and I would say the Judeo-Christian way of death. 800 years before Samuel's death, let me show you how the pattern in Israel was set. Keep one finger here and look back to Genesis 23. And this is what Samuel would have he had a burial place already reserved. This was very commonplace. Genesis 23. We read in Genesis 23, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. So Sarah died in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abram, Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Then Abraham stood up from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I am a foreigner and visitor among you. Give me property for a burial place among you, that I may bury my dead out of sight. And then for the first 18 verses of Genesis 23, we're led in on the negotiations for a burial plot for Sarah, which will turn into, by the way, the family burial plot for generations. And then in verse 20, notice how the chapter ends. We read, So the field and the cave that's in it were deeded to Abraham by the sons of death as property for a burial place. And what we see, there's a whole chapter given over here in Genesis 23 to just Abraham making sure he has a place to properly bury his wife. And what Israel sets down on right then 
is burial arrangements batter to God's people. This is not some decaying flesh you can just treat any old way. This is Sarah. Her soul is in the presence of Christ, of course, but her body is here. And that too, that body, is precious to the Lord. Look at Abraham's exact statement in Genesis 23.4. He wants a burial place to bury his dead out of my sight. Why is he so careful? Because he understands that God will raise that body up on the last day. The first real estate property in the promised land of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the first owned property by God's people was a burial plot. This is the only goods which they can buy from the world in the promised land. The only enduring thing they own in Canaan, a burial plot. And then what we find by the time we get to the end of Genesis, in both Genesis and 49 and 50, that burial plot's filling up. Abraham and Isaac, Rebekah and Leah and Jacob are all buried in the same plot, the cave of Machpelah. And then Joseph insists that his dead body be carried out of Egypt and buried in the promised land. That's how Genesis closes in Genesis 50. Then we find Moses, hundreds of years later, carrying Joseph's body up out of Egypt. He lugs it around for 40 years in the wilderness until Joshua finally buries it in the promised land. So all of that is to say, when you look back to 1 Samuel 25 and you see Samuel being buried, the reason why is this is the written model. When Israel looks at their patriarchs, they think, what did Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph do? They viewed this body with such reverence and care that they carefully buried it. And since Samuel's Bible would have consisted of seven books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and probably Job, This is all he knew. There's no other option than to be buried. The reason why I make much of this is this needs to be considered again in our day because the historic, biblically rooted practice of the Christian church, of burial, is rapidly becoming passe on a scale that's unprecedented in Christian history. Cremation is coming to be accepted among Christians as proper, even preferable. We're told that it's cheaper and it's not right to burden the bereaved with a large bill for burial. We've been told by the environmentalist movement that land for cemeteries can no longer be justified since we're too overcrowded and we must find a different way of treating the dead. Some even like the idea of being able to scatter grandma over her favorite rose bushes. I don't blame humble believers for this. I blame the ministry entirely. Pastors haven't taught their congregations the Bible. So let me give you three lines of evidence that says this is the Christian way. I can certainly give more, but I want to demonstrate that Samuel's practice, what you see in verse 1, is not simply meant to be a historical detail, a footnote, but an example to imitate. First line of evidence. The practice of burial has the support of Holy Scripture from beginning to end, but cremation does not. This is very striking since... The entire course of biblical history, the people of God were surrounded by and rubbing shoulders with in trade and in people movements with people who practiced cremation. But the patriarchs in Israel and the church buried their dead. Every statement regarding the dead in the Bible assumes this practice. Jesus was buried, and we are buried with him. Jesus said in John chapter 5, On the last day, all those who are in their graves 
will hear his voice and come forth. Some will try to say that cremation occurs in the Bible and so the practice has biblical support. Well, they're right. Cremation does occur only for the enemies of God. Achan, whose sin at Jericho brought Israel to ruin, was stoned to death in the valley of Achor and was burned, according to Joshua 7, as a sign of divine judgment. The same goes for Josiah's burning the bodies of the idolatrous priest in 2 Kings 23. The first assertion is the practice of burial has the support of Scripture from beginning to end. The second, and more important, the Christian practice of burial attests to the biblical hope of the resurrection, but cremation is an affront to that hope. The New Testament repeatedly affirms that it's the self-same body that will be raised on the day of resurrection. Contemporary evangelicals have lost touch with this hope. I've heard them over and over again stand by the casket of mom or dad and say, well, that's no longer mom. She's with Jesus in heaven. Well, to be sure, if mom was converted, her soul is in heaven with Christ, but her body remains mom and no other will rise on the last day. Paul affirms that in 2 Corinthians 5 when he speaks of the soul of the believer groaning, longing to be clothed with their resurrection body. Religions that practice cremation as an article of faith, such as Hinduism, do so because they believe the body has no value and it doesn't matter. This is the historical heresy of Gnosticism. Christ values the body. He rose in a real body that Thomas could touch. He will raise your body up on the last day. His salvation is a full and complete one. He didn't just die to save your soul. He died to save you body and soul. But another line of evidence, as creedal Christians, as confessional Christians, we have stated this in our creed. Listen to what our shorter catechism says. Parents, your, your kids coming home from catechism on Wednesday night, they probably know better than most evangelical adults about this. Listen to question 37. What do believers receive from Christ at death? The answer comes back. The souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glories. And their bodies, still being united to Christ, do rest in their graves till the resurrection. The Roman emperor Julian the Apostate who sought to restore paganism to primacy among the religions of the Roman Empire, thought that Christianity's triumph was due to three things. Christians' benevolence to the poor, their honesty in business, and their treatment of their dead. They embodied to the world a new hope that the rest of mankind didn't have. And Julian spoke with awe and wonder about how the Christian practice was to take their, their dead relatives to carefully wash the body, wrap it in linen, then with their pastors and family and friends, commit the body to the grave with prayer, singing, and the reading of 1 Corinthians 15. It was a powerful testimony to their reverence for life and their hope of the resurrection. For over 4,000 years now, this has been the universal custom of the Christian church. For what reasons are people overturning now this holy pattern? Concerns about land are misplaced. There is plenty of land in many ways to make burial grounds go much further than they have in the past. I won't justify 
the extravagant sums spent on gold caskets and funerals. But I've left clear instructions to be buried in a pine box made by Daniel Whitten, but buried. Well, notice as well what happens in verse 1. Look at our text. Because what you're being taught here is a profound text. It's a text on the Christian way of death and dying. Look at the end of verse 1. Then Samuel died, and the Israelites gathered together and lamented for him. Repeatedly through the Old and New Testament, we see the people of God mourning and lamenting when a loved one dies. For example, in the case of Abraham and Sarah in Genesis 23, we read these words. Sarah died in the land of Canaan, and Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and weep for her. When Moses died, we read in Deuteronomy 34 that Israel mourned him for a month. And now in the case of Samuel, look who comes to mourn him. The whole nation. To grieve and lament the loss of a beloved leader. Now let me address a major misconception about godly emotions. Stare at verse 1. And notice what the people of God do. I've had people try to tell me that tears and weeping at a time like this demonstrate a lack of submission to the will of God and they're even improper. According to such people, death is to be treated with stoicism and the believer is to be tearless. Brothers, let me clue this up right now. We are not stoics. In fact, redemption restores our proper understanding and exercise of our emotions. Salvation teaches us how and when to laugh and weep and dance and mourn. I've said it often. The wise man knows that you weep at a funeral and you dance at a wedding. It's the fool who weeps at a wedding and is silent at a funeral. Such a stoic view is seen to be foolish by any biblical study. We see, for example, the man after God's own heart, David, weeping at the death of his son Absalom in 2 Samuel 18. Even our blessed Savior weeps at the grave. He knows the pain of bereavement and separation from loved ones. He he entered into all of our human experiences and emotions. And as he stood at the grave of Lazarus, conscious of what death had done in the experience of mankind, conscious of the pain of parting, and as he saw Mary and Martha weeping, we are told in the shortest verse in the Bible in John 11, He was deeply moved, and he wept. He has no sinful emotions. Are you going to say to Jesus, why are you crying? Now, to be sure, the gospel gives us great hope in death as in life. We don't mourn as others do, have no hope, but we do mourn. In fact, Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes 3, there is a time to weep and a time to mourn. There's a time when it's right and appropriate to weep, and the whole nation of Israel gets it. They all understand this is the appropriate time to lament. To weep for a loved one departed is to say, I'm saddened by the separation. I understand that death is our great enemy. Grief is natural in a fallen world in which we groan in the midst of a groaning creation. Now, there's a restraint on grieving and emotion. The restraint and check Scripture places on our grieving is this. Our grieving for dead believers can never be hopeless. 
Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4. It must always be moderated by the sure and certain knowledge that their lifeless bodies will be raised up, we will be reunited, they are in sinless bliss even now. And our mourning is dead wrong if it ever leads us to murmur against God and question the wisdom of his providence and timing. How do we apply such a short text to us? Let me make a couple of applications. First, it is the practice of the Bible to make much of death and to repeatedly teach the inevitability and certainty of death. This account is not here, verse 1 is not in your Bible, as a historical curiosity. This is the lot of everyone. This will be you. The exact same thing that is said of Samuel will be said of you. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, it is appointed, decreed, ordained for men to die once. And after this, the judgment. Death will happen to every person in this room. God has willed it to be so. Your parents and your children, your husband and your wife, your brother and your sisters, your elders and your deacons, it will happen. That's why Job cries out in Job 30, I know that you will bring me down to death and to the house appointed for all the living. That's why David writes in Psalm 89, What man can live and not see death? David's question, what man can live and not see death, is a rhetorical question. The answer doesn't even need to be said. It's so patently obvious. But the real issue is since death will happen, how can you prepare for it? There's only one way to prepare. Only by repentance of sin and placing your whole trust in the Lord Jesus Christ are you prepared to face your last moment. You may have purchased a cemetery plot, bought a grave marker, picked out a casket, written your will, put your financial affairs in order, and more. But if you're not prepared for eternity, you are foolishly unprepared. Another application. A moment ago in our text, we saw a nation in mourning. It's appropriate for believers to mourn loved ones, yet we don't mourn without hope. Because Jesus has died and was laid in a tomb, we have hope. His tomb was borrowed, not purchased, because he didn't need it very long. On the third day, he rose as the firstfruits of all those who trust in him. In fact, a funeral and a grave are the times and places for us to declare our hope. We must substantively declare our hope in the stupendous benefits of salvation beyond this life and the coming day when our lifeless bodies will be raised. So this is why I, like most Protestant ministers for the last 400 years, as I lay the body in the grave, Pastor Anderson, Pastor Dodd's exact same practice, I pronounce these glorious words. Unto Almighty God... I'm sure words very much like this were said at Samuel's grave. Unto Almighty God, we commend the soul of our brother departed. We commit his body to the grave, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection unto eternal life. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, at whose coming in glorious majesty to judge the world, the earth and the sea shall give up their dead. And the corruptible bodies of those who sleep in him shall be changed and made like his own glorious body. 
according to the mighty working whereby he is able to subdue all things unto himself. Samuel died and will be raised. Let's pray together. Father, teach us to number our days so that we'll indeed be wise and be prepared to enter into eternal life. Deliver us from the folly of the fool who thinks he'll live forever. Enable us to live from this day forward with a clear understanding that very soon we will meet with the appointed day. And if we've embraced Christ by faith, we will come home. We pray this in the name of the one who's even now preparing us a place, even the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.